Friends, I want to ask you to open your Bible with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can find it in that pew Bible right in front of you. And we are not going to go to it right away, but we will in just a moment. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship and to hear from you. That we can stand here and read the very words of you in the scriptures before us to consider them, to submit to them, to grow in them, that you would raise for your people, for yourself, a people who are more faithful today than they were yesterday. And so we pray that you do that work, do that changing of our hearts and minds that only you can do by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder how you would describe the spiritual condition of this region of the country. I'm sure there's probably a variety of different ways that you could evaluate the spiritual condition of an area like Northeast Ohio. Most of us would probably go about our weekly or daily tasks and we would maybe pay a little bit more careful attention to the conversations of people around us. We consider the types of activities that we are invited to participate in. We would look at the community struggles that are out there and the community successes that we enjoy and observe, and somehow we take that kind of mixture of things, that cocktail of things, and we would say or equate in there something about spiritual health. Some of us would simply look at the area, the geographic region of Northeast Ohio, and we would count the number of churches in Northeast Ohio, and we would say that that is an indicator of spiritual health. And still many of us probably don't even think about the state or the spiritual state of a region of the country like ours, because after all, I mean, I have a hard enough time keeping up with the things of the Lord myself and helping my own family to grow. I certainly don't have the time or emotional energy to be concerned with the spiritual health of the people around me. I'm just trying to survive here. But if you had to, but if you had to, stop for a minute and put to words how would you describe the spiritual health of this region of Northeast Ohio? I wonder what you would say. Recently, I've been doing some study on this region of the country, and I've learned some pretty interesting facts that I thought might be nice to share with you. Broadly speaking, we could say that Northeast Ohio is a very spiritual place. I wonder if that's one of the words that you would have used. This is a very spiritual area of the country. A recent Barna study about the Youngstown media market revealed a number of things. Now, just to be clear, the, the media market for the Youngstown area consists of Columbiana County, Mahoning County, Trumbull County, and Mercer County, Pennsylvania. And in that media market, there are 269,000 households. And among those households, 85% of the people would self-identify as a Christian of some kind. 85% of people. That's a really high number. I was, when I first saw that, I, I was taken aback. But, you know, you look at that number, and, and, and of course, you see a Christian of some kind, Protestant, Catholic. They're using very sociological terms to describe Christians. We'll talk about that more in a moment. 
But you peel back a layer of the statistics and you say, okay, if 85% of the people in the area say to be Christians, but here's an interesting fact that only 40% of people in that same market are very active in the life of a local church. And 27% of people in this region are what they call de-churched. That means they used to go to church at some time with some regularity, but in the last six months, they've disengaged completely. And so now 85% of the region, but only but 67% of the region isn't really involved in a local church in any sort of ongoing or meaningful way. That tells us something. Here are a couple more important statistics that uh, you might be interested in, particularly as it relates to beliefs. While 85% of the people would somehow identify themselves as a Christian, 52% of the people in this region believe that good works result in heaven. That the way that you get to heaven is by doing good things, or at least that's part of the equation, and that God himself is sort of the divine purveyor of the scales. As long as the good outweighs the bad, then you know where you will end up someday. Here's another one, that 42% of people believe that Jesus committed sins while he was here on earth. Now, the implications of that are actually really striking. Because if you believe that Jesus committed sins while you're here on earth, this implies most likely that people view him as a great moral teacher, but not as God, because God does not commit sins. He's viewed as a great moral teacher, but not a perfect savior. And that changes the landscape of things. And finally, while 85% of the people would call themselves Christians, at least in some sort of sociological category, 46% of the population of this region would be considered born again. Now, they didn't just go out and ask people, hey, did you call yourself born again? No, that's a, very, that's a very political connotation in our days. But they ask them questions about what they believe about faith and what they believe about salvation, and that indicated to them a category. And so people are born again if they have put their faith or made a personal commitment to Jesus. And number two, if they believe that the way that they get to heaven is by confessing their sins to him and receiving the forgiveness that he offers. That would be a born-again Christian for the sake of this survey. So 85% of people call themselves a Christian, but only 46% of the people say, I believe that I go to heaven because Jesus forgives me of my sins. And so what do you make of all this? Statistics can be skewed in a variety of ways, or a variety of bizarre conclusions can come from statistics, but I think the general big idea of these statistics is this, that we live during this season of history in a region of the country that is very spiritually inclined, while at the very same time we live in a region of the country that is very confused about the most important beliefs of who Jesus is and how God works through his son Jesus to save people. If 85% of the people call themselves Christian by some category, but only 46% believe that they will get to heaven because of the forgiveness that Jesus offers them, then what we see here is a massive disjunction at the core of 
what it even means to be a Christian. And that is the place and the time in which we live. Why am I talking about statistics to start off the sermon today? Because what we're going to see over the next number of weeks together as we start this new series is that God has called each and every one of you to this time and to this place with a purpose. (laughs) And the purpose of engaging the 54% of people who don't have a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that is a huge growing edge for our very own church. There's an urgency about this region, and there's an urgency that needs to grow in our very own church as it relates to this region, and that is the goal, that is the desire. And we could talk about a lot of reasons why these things uh, are the case, that 85% call themselves Christian, at least in a sociological category, and how the idea of being a Christian is now one such category that's related on self-identification as opposed to related to beliefs. We could talk about that. We could talk about teachings from varieties of churches and how we got to this place. But I think really two things become clear. Number one, we have a tremendous need. (laughs) And number two, with that need comes a tremendous opportunity. And I want to talk about the need for a while today. There's a tremendous gospel need in Northeast Ohio. But it doesn't always feel like it, does it? I mean, if you go throughout your day and I were to ask you, do you have a sense of urgency about the need for the gospel for the people that you come in contact with? Most of us would say no. Do you have a weight or a burden that this area, specifically this area, needs to know, the people here need to know more about Jesus? Probably most of us would say no, and I wonder why that is. I think it's for a variety of reasons. There's a the general positive sentiment toward God in this region, the lack of persecution of Christians, it sort of numbs our senses to the gospel need, doesn't it? People are generally positive about God, and so, hey, they must be Christians. 83% of people in this region say they pray every day. I think another reason why we don't sense or feel the need is that we see a lot of churches around here. But here's the problem. There are not a lot of Bible-preaching, gospel-teaching churches around here. I think another reason why we don't really feel the need is that we have a lack of desire, or maybe just a lack of ability, to have spiritual conversations with people. And when we do have that lack of ability, it prohibits us from getting to the core of what people really believe. And when you don't understand what people really believe, then how can you respond with the right type of either celebration or despair? But the fact of the matter is this. There is great spiritual need in Northeast Ohio just because a person identifies themselves as the category of Christian doesn't mean that they actually are Christian. Just because a person has a desire for God doesn't mean that that same person possesses saving faith in God's means. 
to forgive them. Just because this is an area of the country that is comfortable in the Midwest as a Christianized society doesn't mean that you are actually surrounded by Christians. In fact, if the data is even close to correct, approximately 54% of the people that you know are lost without a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We live in a place of great spiritual need. And so what do we do with that? How do we move from a place of need to a place of opportunity? An opportunity is just very simply a situation that makes it possible for you to do something you want to do or something you have to do. When the circumstances come together and you can do something that you want to do or have to do, that's an opportunity. How do we move from a place of great need to a place of opportunity? Well, I think we... The first thing that we do is we just ask two very simple questions. Number one, what does God want? (laughs) And number two, what does God want of us? What does God want? It's such a simple question, it almost sounds stupid, doesn't it? But it's important to ask. And it's important to keep asking what God wants because when you ask the question, it causes us, I think, to genuinely seek the answer. And when you seek the answer for what God wants, you are more likely to conform your desires to his desires, your purposes to his purposes. And so what does God want? Well, the Bible tells us this in a variety of ways. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says this. It says, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants all people to be saved. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, gives us a similar sentiment. The prophet is speaking to Israel in the midst of their rebellion. And it says, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather, in parentheses, rather I want that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O household of Israel? God wants people to turn away from evil deeds and toward him. That's what his desire is. Number three, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Pastor Kyle preached on this last week. And when he came across this text, he saw a verse right in the middle there that talks about what God wants. It says this. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. And the promise that he's talking about is that Jesus is coming back. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. And so what does God want? God wants all to be saved. God wants people to turn from their wicked ways to him. God wants no one to perish, but he wants all to come to saving faith through the repentance 
from their sins. That's what God wants. Now, some of you might ask, if this is what God wants, and he is God, he's all-powerful, and he's sovereign over his creation, then why doesn't he just save everybody? Doesn't God always get what he wants? Why would we even go through the hassle of engaging the lost with the good news of Jesus? I mean, in theological terms, we know that God loves his creation and that this love motivates his desire for all people to be saved. And we also know that God's love is in balance with his justice and a just God requires sin to be made whole or to be reckoned with. God's will in the Bible was talked about in a variety of ways. When we talk about what God wants, we're talking about his will, aren't we? And so we see that his will is expressed as his moral will. It's God's will for you to live holy and godly lives. That's what he desires for you. We see that his will is expressed in terms of his sovereign control over creation. It is God's will that there's a hurricane right now in some sort of way. Whether it's active or passive, we could have a conversation about that. But we also see that it's God's will is expressed in terms of his affection or his desire, his divine affection. And so when we say that God wants all people to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4, we see that this refers to God's affection, to his holy desires, his disposition toward all people. This is his loving disposition toward you. This is his disposition toward the 54% of lost people around you. God does not find joy in anyone perishing. But he loves his creation. And this is reflected in his disposition toward them. He loves his creation so much that if you are one of the 42% of people who says, I'm a Christian, but doesn't believe Christian things, <laughs> he still loves you. And he wants you to come in line with his revealed will. And so, if that's what God wants, that is desire, his disposition, then the next natural question is this, is what does God want from us? And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21 gives us the answer. And so, I asked you to turn there a moment ago. If you've not yet turned, page 966 of your pew Bible, please open it and follow along with me as I read. The Apostle Paul gets to this idea of what God wants. He says, starting in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who might live no longer live for themselves, 
But for him, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. There are, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does God want? He wants all to be saved. What does God want of us? Well, we see here that Christ's love compels us to serve God in sharing the gospel to others. Verses 14 and 15, look at it with me, are really the main point of this top section. He says, Christ's love controls us or compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all have died. And he that died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who had died for them. Who do you live for? <laughs> it's the first implication. And if you've experienced the love of Christ, is it compelling you towards something outside of yourself? This action, we see, is motivated or founded on a healthy fear or reverence of God. Verse 11, by way of observation, says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade. That's another way or a simple way of saying, when you take God seriously, really seriously, because he's a really serious God, he's not just joking around, but he's severe in all the best and all the terrible types of ways, if you take this serious God seriously, then you take his work seriously. <laughs> and if you do not take his work seriously, this might be an indication about how seriously or lack thereof you take him. You know, when you engage in the ministry of reconciliation as he talks about, this is going to put your personal reputation at risk. Verse 13, this is not new to the Apostle Paul. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If you read in the NIV. Now this could mean a couple of different things to be out of their mind. It could mean a form of spiritual ecstasy, but probably it means this. Something very similar to the accusation that Jesus himself received. Do you remember it? Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus, early in his ministry, is teaching to people in a household. And as he's teaching them, the word starts to get out through the village of the radical things that he's saying. And his family says, oh no, he is out of his mind. We better go get him out of there before he says anything else stupid and tarnishes his reputation or ours. When you engage in the ministry of the gospel, there will be some people who will say, you are out of your mind. 
If you've never experienced that before, just keep sharing. It will come. Your personal reputation will be at risk. But for Paul, his priority was pleasing God. He goes on to say that if we are in our right mind, it is for you. That means ministry to people needs to be marked by clear understanding. That's why verse 11 talks about this ministry being plain to you and known to your conscience. To have a message of God to people that's clear and understandable. (laughs) It's so important, isn't it? Especially in an environment where 85% of the people say they're Christian in some kind of category, but only 46% of the people actually believe Christian things about the nature of how God saves people, who Jesus is and how Jesus works. Clarity and understanding are at the core of the gospel because God's not trying to trick anybody. (laughs) What does he want? (laughs) He wants that all will be saved. And so we're compelled in this way, and as we're compelled, not with mixed motives, but pure motives, we're forced to think about the amazing nature of God's love. If, as it says in verse 14, Christ's love controls us or compels us, think about that amazing nature of God's love, that in your worst moments, in your pride, in your self-serving behavior, in your self-pleasing behavior, in your rebellion, in your obstinance, that God still loves you more than you can possibly understand. Isaac Watts wrote a famous hymn in which he says so accurately, love so amazing so divine it demands my soul my life my all we are compelled to share the gospel with those around us because of Christ's love because of his love for us because of his love for our unsaved friends and neighbors and this is motivated all by a healthy fear of God and it results in Christians who live on mission for those around us and so What does God want of us? Christ's love compels us to do something. What else does he want of us? Well, we see in verse 20 that he wants us to fulfill a specific role in his divine action plan. What does that role look with me in verse 20? He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Do you realize that God makes his appeal to the world through people? <laughs> and not just preachers or pastors or elders or Sunday school teachers, that God speaks to the world through the scripture vocalized by people. Broadly speaking, an ambassador is the role that God calls Christians to. What is an ambassador? Well, an ambassador is a diplomatic official of one of the highest ranks, isn't it? 
An ambassador is sent by one country or one sovereign nation to another, and they take up residence there. They often assess a situation. They conduct a mission or negotiate a treaty on behalf of the sovereign nation that sent them. Nikki Haley is the ambassador of the United States to the United Nations. She's been in the news a lot lately. You've probably seen her picture. And as she goes to the United Nations, when she speaks, she does not speak the opinions of Nikki Haley. She speaks, and her voice carries with it the weight of the presidency of the United States. She's not given the opportunity to give her own opinion. She is the mouthpiece for the administration to the United Nations. And it's interesting, that's the role of an ambassador, to speak on behalf of a power or a country to other people, not of their own. The other side of that same coin that's also very interesting is that ambassadors are not expected to follow through enforcing either the generosities or the consequences that they speak. Who does that? When Nikki Haley speaks to the United Nations about sanctions to a certain country, is she the one that enacts the sanctions? No. The power that stands behind her, the administration, is the one who exercises the authority and the power to enact the treaty or the sanctions, the benefits or the consequences of any arrangement. I hope you're starting to see the analogy, friends, that when God calls you to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, he calls you to be a mouthpiece for a power that is greater than you. <laughs> Not just to speak your own words, to rely heavily, almost completely on his word, to speak for the administration of God in the kingdom of God. And the great news about this is, is that you have incredible front row access to see how people engage with this incredible message of God to the world. And conversely, you are not held responsible for enacting success for that same message. Who does that? The power behind you. The one who you speak for is the one who guarantees success, the sovereign God of the universe who's already made his desires known, the sovereign God of the universe who works by the power of his spirit, engaging with the very words that come out of your mouth, the sovereign God of the universe who by the same spirit is working in the hearts and minds of people that you come in contact to, softening them to the good news of the gospel, taking the blinders off, turning hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And here we see that this ambassador goes about their task in a very specific way. Verse 16 tells us how the ambassador has what we might call a situation assessment. It says in verse 16 that we regard no one according to the flesh or from a worldly point of view. That simply means that every relationship that I have as an ambassador is a spiritual one. That no longer do I look at my neighbor or Jim the barber or my child's school teacher, no longer do I look at them through the eyes of what they do for a living 
or through the type of car that they drive. Or no longer do I view them through the lens of the paint that is peeling off the shutters of their house. That now, as an ambassador, I must look at that person first through the lens of how God would view them. I don't view them according to the flesh, it says. An accurate situation assessment for an ambassador is one who views them and every relationship as a spiritual one so that you know what you need to engage with and how. Now, I know that makes some of us squirm very badly because none of us want to be in position to call balls and strikes on other people's spiritual health, do we? Certainly not balls and strikes on whether or not they're saved or not. Because what happens? What's the temptation? We know ourselves so well that when we find ourselves in that very position that we have a temptation to be judgmental to them. And at the very same time, the second temptation comes is that I'm puffed up with pride. Look at how much better I am than they are. And yet... And yet, if you do not look at people through a spiritual lens, then you will never fulfill your role as a spiritual ambassador. You do not look at them through judgmental eyes. But the motivation is the love of Christ and genuine concern for that person. So the mission is clear. People are the goal. Ministry is of reconciliation. Our purpose, our identity, are fundamentally as Christians to play a part in how God reconciles the world to himself through Jesus. Clearly, Christians in Northeast Ohio have not been following through on the mission mandate. I wonder if you have. Hopefully that's about to change. The content of the mission is great, isn't it? Look with me at verse six or 19 and on. We ask the question very clearly, what does God want? Well, what he wants is the gospel enacted in people's life. This gospel, this good news, this core foundation of what it means to be a Christian is talked about in three different ways. Verse 19, it says that Jesus reconciles the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus doesn't count your sins against you. He makes you back into a relationship with God. We see in verse 21 that God made Jesus to be sin in our place. That's what happened when he was nailed to the cross. He bore the weight of our sins and the wrath of God for the consequences so that he in turn would give us his righteousness. This is how he reconciles the world. This is the gospel. Verse 17 tells us the result. It says that if anyone is in Christ... That means if anyone's united to Jesus by putting their faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, they become a new creation. They have new life. This is what God wants for me. This is what God wants for you. This is what God wants for the 54% of people around you who don't know him. That's the gospel. Now some have asked repeatedly, What do we do? How do we engage? How do we get to that place of situation assessment and actually engaging in helpful and meaningful ways? We have some models for that, both in the Bible and in history. 
You know, some people would say, some historians would say that the modern missionary movement of the past 200 years has resulted in more people coming to follow Jesus than the previous centuries combined. Think about that. I don't know if it's true down to the number, but it's certainly close. That just in the last 200 years, missionaries spread throughout the globe, taking up their role as ambassador, have seen millions upon millions upon millions of men and women and boys and girls put their faith in Jesus. And this movement was marked by some very specific things. Number one, people knew what God wanted and they aligned their desires accordingly. Number two, people were compelled or controlled by Christ's love and motivated by a healthy fear of God to take up the role of ambassadors actively. Number three, people found the greatest glory in life in pleasing God rather than pleasing themselves. And this resulted in people who were willing to give up nearly everything that they had so that they could take up this highest office of ambassador for the one who calls them to it, boldly proclaiming the truth of Jesus even when people thought them to be out of their mind. <laughs> Number four, while this was happening, God broke their heart for their place. How did he break their heart or why? Well, because he's a loving God who desires no one to perish. And when your desires are aligned with his, you begin to view people through spiritual eyes. And as you look at people through spiritual eyes, you gain a sense of weight and urgency and brokenness for those who don't know him. And finally, these people trusted that when a critical mass of people in a specific geographical locale would be reached with the good news of Jesus, that those people would in turn take up their roles and ambassadors as ambassadors, and the multiplication would continue. That the kingdom of God would grow through people being ambassadors. That the divine action plan of God that you ask about from time to time is you. You are the action plan. That's it. What is the church going to do for outreach this year, Pastor Nick? You. You're the plan. And there's no better one. Today we begin a four-week series that we are calling Urgent. Because for far too long we have been anything but urgent. Christians in the region have not formally taken up their roles as ambassadors for God. For far too long, many of us have sat by and we've talked about being more involved in evangelism or what is the church going to do for outreach while at the very same time doing very little about it personally. For far too long, we've lacked the appropriate grieving for the many, many, many people around us who are lost and don't know Jesus. What does God want? God desires that all will be saved and for this to happen 
Every single man and woman and child in Northeast Ohio needs to have a clear representation of the gospel so they have the opportunity to accept or reject this good news of Jesus. So over the next couple weeks, I'm going to push you. I'm going to lean into you a little bit. And actually, the scriptures are going to do that because this is a huge growing edge for our church. And our hope is that the evangelistic temperature of this group of people would rise. That we would move from a place of passivity to activity, that we would experience a supernatural weight or burden as we look at the people around us, that we would find great joy in being out of our mind with the good news of the gospel. There's an army of people here. I wonder what it would be like if every single one functioned daily as an ambassador for Jesus. 54%. That's over half of the people that you know who don't know the gospel. And if you start to put faces to those numbers, the burden becomes significant. I hope it's those faces that you see as you close your eyes tonight to go to sleep. Let's pray together. Father, we know that a sense of urgency of this task is also a super, supernatural work of you, that you do the transforming of our minds and of our hearts and that you help us to see things spiritually. We pray that you would forgive us, Lord, for previous times where we are lazy or insecure or just too self-serving to take up the role of ambassador. We pray that you would help us with great confidence in the message of the gospel, that you would show your wonderful, loving disposition to humanity as more and more of us engage with this message for the lost and that your kingdom would expand using Christians even here to do the work. We pray this for the sake of your glory and the expanse of your kingdom.